You're listening to The Real Well Show with Kathy Fetke, the real estate investor's resource. Interest rates, energy prices, inflation, housing, apartments, storage, retail, hotels, we're discussing all of it here on The Real Well Show. I'm Kathy Fetke, and thanks so much for joining me here. I am very excited to interview our guest today. I'm a big fan. John Chang serves as the National Director of Research and Advisory Services for Marcus and Millichap, where he leads a team of dedicated real estate research professionals who produce the firm's vast array of market research publications. And he's here with us today on The Real Well Show to share some of his insights. Oh, John, it's such an honor to have you here on The Real Well Show. Thank you so much for coming. Oh, thanks, Kathy. I love to be here with you. It was just a few months ago that we were in Denver and we got to be on the stage together doing the, the infamous debate at the Best Ever Conference. And I, we got to be on the same team. Thank goodness. I would not want to be your opponent. <laughs> we did um, great. Oh, it was really fun. Uh, and so that topic was, will there be more sales volume this year than last year? Now, last year was a record sales volume year for, uh, for commercial real estate. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Last year was just uh, off the charts. It was about close to 30% higher than the previous peak uh, in terms of the total number of transactions. So it was a really, really busy year for commercial real estate. Based on total number of transactions. Oh my gosh, but what about actual cost? Do you have those numbers? The was dollar it? volume, uh, yeah. total dollar volume was up about 45%. So ah. there, not only were there more deals, but they tended to be bigger deals. Amazing. And so we got put on the side. I don't know if you chose it. I just got put on the side that was that this year was going to be less volume than last year. And, uh, you know, we had to come up with ways to argue that. And, uh, you know, one of the things I said, and I think we both talked about is interest rates going up this year and how that might impact the market. Well, here we are, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, we've made it. Uh, those interest rates starting to move. Yeah. So what are you seeing on your side? Uh, is it slowing things down or are people still frantically trying to acquire hard assets? Yeah, it hasn't slowed things down yet, uh, but we're just getting started, right? So the federal funds rate has risen by about 75 basis points. We see the 10-year the treasury is now up around 3%. Uh, it's gone up about 100 basis points. And so uh, we're starting to see those capital costs rise. But you know, you have to remember the transactions that are closing today were put under contract, you know, 30, 60, 90 days ago, and they were put under contract and financing was locked in before the rates really started to move. Uh, so I, we haven't seen a change in the number of transactions closed and probably won't in the first half. But as we go forward, as we get into the second half of the year, uh, there's a good chance that we'll see a little bit of, of a slowdown. You know, the first half was very strong. In fact, first half is ahead of the first half of last year. But we are seeing some more pushback in the marketplace. Right now, it's pretty mild. But if interest rates continue to climb, uh, you know, I expect that in the second half of this year, we're going to see things taper back a little bit. You know, it's going to be close, though. I bet you that at the end of the year, when we count up all the deals, it'll probably be pretty close to where we were in 2021, maybe just a little bit light. Um, you're just not sure. It, it, there's so much capital out there. There's so many investors active in the market looking for opportunities, looking for places to put capital, looking for ways to hedge inflation. Uh, and real estate's really been kind of at the forefront of that. 
Well, you know, and I didn't mention that we won that debate. Yes, <laughs> we fact, did. In fact, I think we had a record number of people who who voted for us uh, based on past years. So maybe we'll end up actually being right that it's still I think you you know, you were saying it's going to be still really strong, but maybe just ever so slightly less strong than last year. And it sounds like that's where we're headed. Well, I, I like for it to be busy, which is good for, that's our business, we're a commercial real estate brokerage, um, but uh, I also like to be right. So just a little bit less, that's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, a lot of people get confused when when headlines are saying that the Fed is raising interest rates. They think, people think mortgage rates or loans. So, you know, can you just go over that? And I did actually watch the video that just came out today that you did. These, it's still very, very low. Even though the Fed is raising yeah. rates, it's still historically low. So yeah, what, what's the Fed doing? What kind of rate are we talking about when, when we see that the Fed is raising rates? Sure, sure. So the Federal Reserve really only gets to move one rate, and that's the overnight rate. That's what they charge banks uh, for, for money when they loan it overnight, right? So uh, that's very, very short-term lending. That's a one-day lending rate. And the Fed has been moving that. What they're trying to do is, is move the entire uh, matrix of, of interest rates. So when you see the Fed move the overnight rate, then maybe you'll see the three-month rate move, and then, then the one-year rate, and the two-year rate, and so on. Uh, but it really isn't tied to what you're paying for uh, a loan on a piece of property. There's no direct correlation. Loans are more closely tied, uh, at least fixed rate loans are more closely tied to the 10-year treasury. And the 10-year treasury is going to be tied uh, more to bigger picture things like what's happening with, um, first of all, the Fed's movement, whether they're buying or selling treasuries. Um, that's quantitative easing or quantitative tightening. And it's also tied to what's happening in the stock market because a lot of times when people are selling out of the stock market, they buy treasuries, uh, especially the 10-year treasury, and that can put downward pressure on rates. So the Fed's moving one piece. That's with their overnight rate movements. They're also just getting started with quantitative tightening, which is going to try to push up those longer-term rates, the 10-year treasury. But you always have to remember, they don't control these things. This is, they're not really directly managing these things. They are managed by the market. And the, uh, the volatility in the stock market lately uh, has been helping to hold those 10-year treasury rates down a little bit lower. We're seeing more money come out of the stocks and buying the treasuries, and that's pushing those rates down. So there's a lot of factors involved. In general, they're both going up. Um, we have saw the... Um, the yield curve invert very briefly, uh, but when people found out that the Fed would start using quantitative tightening, uh, selling off their long-term treasuries, that you saw the 10-year rates start to rise up again. So um, it's an imprecise science, I guess is the best way to put this. Yeah, I think the, quanti the QT, yeah, not QD, but the QT, the quantitative tightening is the big story really that it seems like people should be paying attention to more because if, if we're in a quantitative easing, QE, uh, that's when the Fed is coming in and buying those bonds and, and mortgage-backed right. securities and keeping rates low, right? Exactly. And, exactly. and when they reverse that, which they're doing right now, so they're going from QE and buying and keeping rates low to QT, which is, nah, we're going to let it go up. That's the story. And that's what's going to, that's what's going to really affect our, our business, our real estate rates. So got to keep an eye on it. So I'm curious when we were in Denver, 
there was a group there. People were kind of whispering about who who had bought a, a value add property, or they had you know syndicated a multifamily in Houston that I'd heard was around a one and a half cap. Now, when you've got the ten year treasury at three percent, doesn't it seem like investors would go for the three percent? You know, instead of the yeah, I mean. How's that going to work out? And as we see cap rates com compress, are investors just going to go to stuff that's you know maybe not as risky? Some, some will, uh, but you also have to remember tax benefits, right? With your with your ten thirty one exchanges in particular, that's a big benefit. Uh, the other thing is value add. You know, I was thinking about uh, our conversation, and I was reflecting back. You know, why does real estate make sense right now? And uh, I remember in, in 1971, my dad bought his first rental property, and, and I think the interest rate was like six and a half percent. And and he owns that property still today because he's added value to it. He developed it, he made it better, he rented it, and and fixed it up over the years. And and he bought properties all through the 70s when interest rates were pushing all the way up to 10 percent. And he's done really well with all of that uh, real estate apartments and single family houses because his mentality was, how do I add value, right? So if you get a one and a half cap, and and, and that is a little bit of an extreme case, but <laughs> you can, I've even seen deals with negative cap rates, right? Because uh, of the way that the, the property is operating, turn around and become very, very good investments. And it's really about investors getting an eye for the property and understanding ways that they can improve it either through management or fixing units up or you know uh, converting things. And that's the creation of value. I think in a way, a lot of investors have gotten lazy over the last few years because interest rates have been so low and you can just buy into a deal that cash flows right up front and you're making money and you don't have to work as hard. And I think that we're coming to a time where investors are really going to have to put, you know, roll up their sleeves, understand the intrinsic value of a property, understand how they can create value, what their unique capabilities are, what they can do different than the previous owner, and then buy those properties. The cap rate can be whatever it is. It can be below the cost of capital when you start. As long as when you finish, you know, maybe get done you know, six months or a year later, your yield is outpacing the cost of capital, and that's what you're really looking at. I mean, that, that makes so much sense. People who flip properties do the same thing, and they always have, even when our interest rates were so, so low, to get the money that you need to, to buy the property and fix it up and sell it. You know, people were paying 10, 12. I mean, I, I was a private lender. I know they're, yeah. they're paying 10, 12, 15 percent. Uh, even some of the deals we've done, we've had 15% preferred return this past decade when you could get such much cheap money because we knew the upside. We knew the upside. It's like, hey, I don't care that I'm paying this right now. Uh, we're going to make so much money um, just from improving it. So yeah, really good point. Sophisticated investors don't care. <laughs> right? They, right. Yeah. they find a way to make sense. The ones, the ones I worry about are the people who are just trying to get in that are new. And, and again, research, know your market, know your properties, know your skills and your talent, make sure you have the right partners uh, because the newer investors, and there's been this long train of investors coming into the space. And, and if, you're, if the investors are still new, they don't really have a feel for the market as well as the, as the very seasoned investors. And so they, you know, now is the time for them to be a little bit more cautious and pay very close attention to what's going on. Absolutely. It's, it's no longer low hanging fruit. You've got to get up <laughs> yeah. the ladder. You've got to be careful. <laughs> um, yeah, all of that. Stay away from the bees. Um, all right. So, 
Uh, inflation. You know, some people are saying it's peaked. Some people, I mean, everybody's gotten a, an idea and an opinion, right? Uh, someone today just said, oh, yeah, you know, right before elections, we're going to suddenly see inflation go down. I don't know. Uh, but I'm guessing that there's people from all over the world uh, that are coming to U.S. property because we printed so much money and they're said, uh, you know, usually oftentimes that money ends up in real estate. So do, do you see that as like also an option that 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 many of these companies are just buying real estate with the belief that it will inflate in price? Well, uh, I, I've been on calls with top investment funds all over the country, uh, and they're talking about foreign capital coming into the United States through these funds uh, from Europe, from Asia. And the reason is because as many challenges as we have here, right, with our inflation and everything else, uh, we put a lot of capital into the market, but so did everybody else. We had a global pandemic. It affected everybody. And within that context, the U.S. economy is about the strongest in the world right now. And our growth patterns are strong. And the real estate is doing very well. And, and real estate has intrinsic inflation resistance built into it, especially the ones that can mark to market, like apartments, hotels, and self-storage. Uh, those are all properties that you can move the rents very quickly. So there is more capital coming into the U.S. Uh, than we've seen historically, uh, but a lot of it's coming through funds. It's very difficult to see, it's very difficult to trace, uh, but we are seeing that money come in. With regard to inflation, uh, you know, there's all sorts of stories out there, but if you look at the underlying drivers, the price of oil, still very high uh, and at risk. We have a Ukraine, you know, what's going on in Ukraine. We have all of the challenges uh, with our supply chains. Those have not gone away. We're getting better at dealing with it in the U.S., but the cost to move a container from China uh, was about $1,500 per container. 40-foot container before the pandemic is now $15,000 to move that same container. If you look at what's happening in China, which is the number one export country in the world and where we get a lot of goods, the port of Shanghai, this, the entire city of Shanghai, which is the largest port in the world, is shut down. And it has been since the end of March. And so that's going to affect our supply chains. We're just going to have a lot of uh, a lot more difficulty accessing products. And as a result, we haven't slowed down our purchasing, right? Retail sales are up 7.5% compared to last year. So we're buying as much stuff as we can get, but there's less stuff to buy. And as a result, that's causing, that's one of the key reasons inflation is rising. And I don't know that that's going to settle down anytime very soon. In fact, when you look at our forecast, we're expecting inflation to be elevated into next year, into 2023. Yeah, it's it's really crazy timing on things, right? Because we had factories shut down for a year or two years and getting some of these factories back up and running is not that easy. Then you've got now this, this oil crisis and at a time when people are opening up their doors and going outside, you know, yeah. they're jumping on planes. And I mean, we're, can't believe how much travel I've got this summer. Uh, when I, I was like, I really kind of enjoyed not, not having that, but yeah, people are out and about and they're going and you're seeing them on Facebook. Um, so, you know, have everything shut down and then open up. It's really the speed of change that can cause problems, right? To, to shut down immediately and then open up immediately. It's, it's causing these, uh, jolts to the economy. Yep. Yeah. Yep. 
So and and the other thing, you I mean, you you have a good point. People are going to be traveling. People are spending money. They're they're enjoying themselves uh, as as uh, the pandemic protocols are reduced or eliminated. Uh, but you also have to remember there is more savings today than any time in the history of the country. If you look at uh, the savings versus the debt, for the first time in 30 years, there's more savings than there is debt right now. So this is a big opportunity. People are spending money. They're going to travel. They're going to take vacations. We're forecasting hotel occupancies uh, to rise significantly, especially domestic uh, vacation de destinations. You still have some you know, protocols for COVID when you travel internationally. So domestic demand for hotels is going to be very strong this year because people have money in their pocket and they haven't been out. And uh, they're also buying products and consumer goods. And so, um, you know, again, I think prices are going to keep going up for a little while. Yeah. I mean, we have a little Airbnb we just tried out, you know, over the pandemic and it, it rates just keep going up. We don't control it. It's just sort of the auto, you know, the, yeah. the algorithm chooses the rate and it just keeps going up. And I, I, I would agree. People are wanting to get out. Um, so that was one of the things that came up at the conference is where can you still get a deal? And there were different asset classes that, you know, maybe are just at the beginning of coming back. Um, is, is that still the case? I mean, like, what are, what are the deals right now? Yeah. There's, you know, certain types of hotels though. Now, and that's not just for the, for the basic investor, right? The hotels right. are very specific. You have to know the business, you have to have good partners and so on, but uh, urban hotels, hotels that cater to conferences, uh, those are expected to be on the upswing. We're seeing a lot of momentum in retail, right? A lot of people thought retail uh, was going to have big problems during the pandemic, and they turned out to be small problems, right? Most of the tenants kept paying, most of the space uh, stayed filled, vacancies only went up about 100 basis points, and they've come down most of that already. So retail centers are doing uh, quite well, and their outlook is very strong. Uh, over the coming year. Uh, of course, you have multifamily and, and you have uh, industrial, which have been bid up and they're very, very spendy, but there are markets around the country where you can still find opportunities, uh, especially apartments in some of the smaller cities that have growth potential as people are migrating uh, to those smaller cities. So it's, again, it's really kind of knowing what's happening on the ground uh, for those types of properties. There's some people betting on uh, suburban office to make uh, a comeback. It's actually suburban office is already recovering. Uh, urban office is still having some challenges. So uh, again, in areas where people are relocating to growth markets, uh, suburban office has been uh, gathering momentum as well. So those are kind of the properties. Um, oh, self-storage. Self-storage has also been doing very well. Um, also bid up a bit. So again, this is an opportunity for, for people who can do the research, who can dig down and understand that property in that submarket, in that metro, and really make a case for ways to buy that right and add value to it. Those are the properties that are going to do the best. That's where their portfolios make sense. And, and to me, that, that's you know, people who understand the market better. And boy, oh boy, do you need to be able to predict costs of things if you're going to be improving or building uh, because <laughs> it's in flux. We don't even know what those costs are. It's almost impossible yeah. to bid things out. And a lot of contractors just won't because they don't know what things are going to cost or they're, they're just saying, I'll give you my bid. But 
uh, without the cost of materials because I don't know if I can even get them, right? So that you've got to be flexible and have plenty of reserves for that if you're planning on doing value add. Yeah, I was talking to a developer last week. Um, they developed single tenant uh, net lease retail and they said they just, even, even when they have a low basis in their land, that they're having a really hard time getting the numbers to pencil. Uh, you know, construction material costs are up uh, 18% on a year over year basis. Uh, and, and they're up something like 30% from uh, pre pandemic levels. So, and, and again, know the availability. Like lumber uh, comes and goes, steel comes and goes. Uh, and, and so all of those uh, development materials are going to be key ingredients. Uh, so the, the heavy lift developers, you need to know, you have to have people who know what they're doing and who have, who have established supply chains. That's, that's the other big part of it. That's the key. Yeah. I've got, uh, you know, we syndicate and I work with several developers who are small time, you know, they're little, and we've gone into the, these little markets like outside of Bozeman, you know, and, um, and, and there was great need for housing, but we don't, we're not a big builder. It's hard to get the materials. That's what a lot of people don't understand is how, do, you know, how does that work? How come some builders have an easier time and others don't? They have relationships, right? At the end of the day, real estate, the whole industry is a relationship business, right? You have to know people, you have to, you have, to have those relationships, you have to understand the inner workings of it, um, and you have to partner with people who really know what they're doing and have their relationships leveraged in your benefit. But a large builder in a region may have access to materials that, that other builders don't. Uh, or they've already secured it. They've already pre-purchased it. Uh, they already knew that this wave was coming and that they were going to have the need. So they bought it ahead of time and they have it ready to go for the next project, whatever that happens to be. Uh, we saw a huge issue with appliances, uh, you know, over the last yeah. year or so. And where to the point where apartment developers were going down to Home Depot and simply buying all the inventory in the whole store. Mm-hmm. And, and that was what they were forced to do. Even though they had good relationships, they may be six months out to get, you know, uh, sets of, of, of ranges and refrigerators for their apartment units, uh, even the large developers and builders. So, uh, you know, secure that inventory, know where it's coming, um, you know, keep track of what's in your local Costco if you're a small guy or, or, or Home Depot. And, uh, but it's, it's really going to be a dynamic. It's still fluid those supply chains are not straightened out yet and it's still going to be bouncy for the next six months. And it's a, it's a capitalization thing. I mean, you know, a small builder can't just go out and buy all the materials, you know, in advance. We, the way that we did it was we raised enough money to buy the land and build the first 10 homes, right? And then use the profits to, to build the next 10. So we didn't ha- have that extra money to just buy all the materials for all the homes in advance, like some other of uh, the national builders could do. So if you're if you're going into this, make sure you've got those reserves on hand. Very, very important. Yeah, well, the easy parts, we're over the easy part, right? The last 10 years have been the easy part. Now we get into the part where experience <laughs> matters. Yeah. Right. And that's that's where you know we're gonna see this play out. So I am wondering, and this is a different perspective, but uh, I know that there's a lot of multifamily investors and just investors in general, a lot of new ones who came in the market over the past 10 years who got into bridge loans. We're just planning on, on refinancing once their value add was finished. Uh, what's, how's that going to play out for people who just a few years ago just had no idea that we were going to be facing these massive changes? Do you think we'll see more 
distressed inventory on the market and therefore more opportunity for investors? Well, uh, okay, so the people who got the bridge loans, and, and they usually got them for very specific reasons. They were redeveloping, they were repositioning a property, they, they, they were developing out a portion of it, something like that. Uh, and, and they couldn't get traditional financing because they had to prove the model, if you will, and the intent was to transition over to regular financing. But the cost of capital has gone up. Some will make that you know, round trip, they will get under that next uh, interest rate and they will get their financing locked in. Uh, and some will continue to face challenges or might not be able to do it. But I wouldn't plan on seeing the distressed assets coming out, right? Because over the last few years, we've seen so much appreciation, uh, especially in multifamily with rent growth, falling vacancy rates uh, and, and appreciation by falling cap rates over the last few years that even if they get into a little bit of a bind, they can still come out to market at, at, at a fair market value and still actually make money on some of those deals. Uh, so, you know, you know, nobody's uh, expecting to see a huge wave of distress coming out there uh, through this rise in interest rates. Um, there's just too much appreciation over the last few years for that to happen. Mm, that's a really good point. I know there could be some inv uh, disappointed investors thinking they could. Everybody's you know. waiting. They yeah. did that at the beginning of the pandemic, right? There were yeah. literally billions of dollars of funds waiting for distress to come out during the pandemic. Uh, and that money was just never placed. Those, that was literally, I think we counted it up at one point, there was $6 billion sitting in funds waiting for distressed property during the pandemic uh, that just never got into anything because the distress levels were so low. Most investors have been well capitalized and well positioned. Uh, and, uh, you know, even in, in, say, office, which has really, quite frankly, been the hardest hit segment, most of those investors didn't get into trouble. They knew uh, and they were prepared. So they didn't, they didn't over, uh, overreach and they weren't over leveraged. So they were able to feed the beast over the last couple of years. And, and now as the market starts to come back, they'll be able to recover. Well, those fund managers were not listening to you, were they? <laughs> we had it was on our videotape, right? We did a webcast <laughs> at the beginning of the pandemic, and we said right up front, right? it was uh, April, right after the pandemic started. We said, "Look, there's a lot of money going into these things. These these are probably not going to come out, and here's why." Uh, so, if you rewind the tape to two years ago <laughs> or 2020 uh, in April, our webcast, we got out there and we were pointing that out from the very beginning. Oh man. Okay, one last thing. I, I do know that um, you know everything depends on energy, right? We don't really even think about how much we depend on energy, just getting anything done. Uh, and you know, there's story about tapping into our reserves here. Do, are mm -hmm. you concerned at all that we'll have a shortage of energy that could really slow down the economy and affect things? I don't think so. And the reason is, is that there's a ton of potential energy out there, right? So if we're talking about oil prices, Yes, they went up. We've tapped into the strategic reserve. We're, we're kind of artificially holding those down. They can only do that for so long, right? The strategic reserve is, is there really as a, a guardian against uh, the U.S. going to war, right? So that is the, so we'll be able to put fuel in ships and planes and everything else. Uh, so they can only move so much out of the strategic reserve. But there is still capacity in Texas uh, and, and North Dakota, uh, a lot of the fracking uh, and a lot of the oil drilling in those states was capped and put on hold uh, when oil prices fell, whatever it was, 10 years ago. And, and those wells are still available. So they're going to start uncovering those. They're going to start uh, uh, tapping into those. Uh, 
but it will take time because it's capital intensive and those oil companies are a little concerned that, uh, okay, we're going to get started and we're going to invest a bunch of capital and then, you know, this whole issue will go away and we're left with all this capital expenditure and the price yeah. of oil drops from, you know, $105 down to $80 or $70 again, and they're left holding the bag. So they're being careful. Uh, I was doing research in Canada, uh, the tar sand oils up in Alberta, the same story. Those those uh, developers, those oil companies have the ability and the capacity to meet the needs. Uh, they simply want assurances that if they go and invest the capital, that they're not left holding the bag if things go another direction. At the same time, uh, the U.S. is is still growing its use of renewable energy sources. Uh, I think that's going to be something that we have to continue to do and build and maintain and grow. Uh, it doesn't meet all the needs, but over time, we want to have both of these uh, sides of the equation rising in order to ensure energy independence, if you will, and to make sure that we don't have a lot of disruptions from that side of the equation. Yeah, I mean, it was just a few years ago that there was too much oil, right? There was a the tankers were just sitting out in the ocean with no place to store, uh, you know, so I could see where that yeah. investors might be like, oh, I don't know if we want to go through that again. Yeah, it's volatile. It's volatile. And and so and you never know what OPEC's going to do, right? Because they can move the needle on oil production globally very, very quickly, uh, Saudi Arabia specifically. So, um, you know, there, there's, it's a little bit of a dangerous game. So people will move carefully and cautiously. Uh, I think there's a certain level of resistance point, you know, somewhere around $110, $120 a barrel, uh, where, uh, you know, the government's going to do everything it can to keep those prices tapped down. They, you know, they want to keep them 105 or lower uh, and, and try to keep them in that range. It still hits everybody in the pocketbook, but we also have to remember People are generally making 5% more, 5.5% uh, wage growth over the last year. Jobs are plentiful. Unemployment rates down to 3.6%. We have 5.5 million more jobs today. Uh, then we have people looking for work. You know, everything's moving in the right direction. We added 2.7 million jobs this year. Is it, yeah, two, uh, no, 2.1, 2.1 so far this year. Um, so... There's a lot of momentum economically. We talk about inflation and risks and recession and all of these things and, and, and the, the rising interest rates. We can't forget the underlying economic drivers right now are still strong and supporting demand for all types of consumption and real estate. Um, so people aren't really hurting right now in general. And, and so if we're gonna have things going wrong, it's good, you know, times have been pretty good actually lately. Hmm. Love that. Love that. Okay. I so said that was my last question, but I have one more. Is that okay? Sure. <laughs> All right. I know you're uh, in commercial real estate, but mm -hmm. I still see, hear people in residential saying, oh, I'm just going to wait till prices come down before I buy. What, what's your response to that? I, I see that. I see that in the news. I see people talking about that. I talked to, you know, some of the young people who work for me and they're thinking, gosh, you know, this is crazy. How does this work? But if you look back historically at home prices, they tend not to go down. They tend to go up. If you look at demographics today and where, uh, where things are in terms of people buying homes, uh, you look at the millennial generation, they're right in their, in their 30s. They're actually right in the prime range for home purchases. Yes, interest rates are rising. And yes, that's crimping the market a little bit on a temporary basis because it's a little bit of a shock to the system. But at the end of the day, we have a housing shortage. And that housing shortage is going to get worse, not better, for the next 10 years. 
Yes, if you wait 10 years to buy your first home, you might be in a different market, but we don't know. If you look back when the baby boom generation was entering the age of home buying, uh, kind of in the, in the 80s, on an inflation-adjusted basis from over the next 20 years, uh, home prices went up about 55%, okay? The, the millennials are exact same spot and they're roughly the exact same size of age cohort, right? About 72 million people. They're going to need, they're going to need housing. They're, they're getting married. They're, they're going out, they're starting families. They're going to need housing. They can't live with mom and dad forever. They're going to be looking at those opportunities to move out. That's why our vacancy rate in apartments is down to the record low 2.4%. That's why apartment absorption over the last year totaled over 700,000 units. That's almost two times the record, previous record of apartment demand. That's why we're seeing homes selling and the inventory of homes down to two months of inventory. Uh, even with rising interest rates, once we get over the hurdle, uh, people will adapt. And I think that we're not gonna see any corrections there. I remember when I was looking to buy my first home, interest rates were at 8% on my first home purchase and they've come down since then. I was able to refi as it went down and we've been in good times, it's been nice. But we're going to be going back into a cycle where we're gonna see uh, you know, the, those interest rates rise and people will adapt. They're making, you know, the young professionals are doing well. Their, their income growth has been good. And I think that they're, they're going to adapt to this and they're going to start buying again. Um, there's a shortage of, of houses available. Um, hopefully, actually, this combination will put a little bit more slack in the market, but I don't see prices coming down. Yeah, I mean, I, intuitively, I just, I, I looked at my daughter who uh, just bought her first house and it was almost $1.2 million, but you know what? It's in California and, and it was a, it's a total starter home. And I thought, my goodness, poor thing. But then I went back to when Rich and I bought our house, our first house 25 years ago, feeling old, but yeah, 25 years ago. And it was in the $500,000 range. So if you, in, you know, add for inflation, uh, it's about the same, you know, so that, that was a big purchase for us. And it was expensive yeah. and it's hard. It's always been hard. Interest rates were yeah. at seven, 8%. It's never usually easy to buy a house. There was a time in the 2000s when it was way too easy and that didn't work out well. Anyone could, you know, anyone, <laughs> a house for everyone. Look under your chair, That's there's right. a house. I mean, it was just, it was giving houses away. That, that doesn't usually work well. You've got to, you know, want it, have a save for the down payment and, and have good credit and all these things. Those days are back. There was a blip in time where we, we just threw all that out the window and realized that doesn't work. Nope. You got to have the down payment and have the credit and show that you're a good borrower. And, and they are right. The, the FICO scores today are so high of people uh, yeah. getting loans. And so anyway, yeah, when you just kind of adjust for inflation, it's like these kids today are basically paying what we paid inflation and justice is just, just as hard as it was then. It's just a higher price tag. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I, it's exactly right. I remember the first house I bought, we literally cracked open a piggy bank to cover closing costs. I mean, we were like, you know, <laughs> taking it down to the coin star machine and throwing it in and hoping we had enough to cover our closing costs. And we did, and we got that first house and then we grew wealth from there. Real yeah. estate is a fantastic growth channel for wealth uh, over time. It's not a quick fix. It's not something that moves super fast. Some people make money in it very fast and God bless them, they're doing great. But in general, it is a long-term growth strategy that pays huge dividends 
over the long term. Uh, and again, uh, you know, the earlier people can get into that first purchase and then get into grow into their second, third, fourth, and fifth. Uh, I think I don't know anybody who's ever regretted it. Yeah, great advice. Yes, yes, yes. All right, John, well, such a pleasure to have you here on The Real Wealth Show. I just so appreciate you giving us all your insights. Kathy, it's so much fun to chat with you, and I love it, and I hope to speak with you again. And thank you for joining me here on The Real Wealth Show. You can get access to our vast array of information on where and what and when to buy real estate at realwealthshow.com. Views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to realwealthshow.com.